0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Roth. I'm the editor in chief of LinkedIn. Welcome to This Is Working. Each week on this show, we talk to leaders who are helping us navigate through these difficult times. We want to bring you people who are big employers, big givers, or big thinkers. Here's how it works. I start off the conversation with our guests, and we do it live every week on the LinkedIn Editor's page. You join in, leaving your comments and questions, and then I try to get and group as many of those in front of our guests as I can. A few days later, we bring you this podcast featuring key moments from that live discussion. My guest today is Ray Dalio. In 1975, Ray founded what became the world's largest hedge fund firm, Bridgewater Associates. Bridgewater now has more than $150 billion in assets under management. So just to put that in perspective, if Bridgewater were a country, it would be one of the 60 largest countries in the world. Ray is also widely known for his book Principles. Now he's turning that principled attention to our current moment and he's looking at how it's playing out against what the world has experienced before. He's been writing on LinkedIn about cycles of economic and social upheaval in history and what we might learn from the past. Ray joined me to put some perspective around what's happening and to share his vision of what's to come. Here's our conversation. Can you give us some sense of how this looks in the scope of history?
2: There are debt cycles. There's money and credit. And then there's real economic activity. And in 1945, we began a new monetary system. The world created the dollar as the world's currency at the end of World War II, and then we began a debt cycle. And spending power comes from money and credit, and so central banks create money and credit, and we have the world's most powerful central bank because the uh, dollar's the world's currency, and we began a cycle, and that cycle allowed more and more stimulation, but we accumulated more and more debt, and the ability to do that diminishes as interest rates get closer to zero, because usually they stimulate by cutting interest rates. And when the interest rates hit zero, central banks have to print more money and buy more financial assets, which they did um, in 2008 the way they did it in 1933. And then the economy picks up on that, and we create more money and debt. And then you have uh, a downturn. Now this downturn came because of a virus, but um, if whether it came for a virus or for any other reason, it's an economic downturn in which the central bank has a limited ability to be stimulative. So think of it this way. Every individual, every company, every country has a certain amount of income and a certain amount of expenses and then a certain amount of savings. And when the income falls, so that it's low, maybe even below the expenses, they have to dig into uh, their savings. And so what we're experiencing now is there was a fall in income, and a lot of people and a lot of countries and a lot of companies don't have an adequate amount of savings. And so that's where the financial crisis comes from. If the virus never comes back again, um, think of it as like a tsunami that has produced, it recedes and there's still damage and this financial damage. And so what we see now are holes in income and holes in balance sheets. And then you're seeing the World Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, try to fill it in for Americans. So you're seeing unprecedented amounts of creation of government debt Um, borrowing money, because where does it get the money from? It borrows it, it borrows from the Federal Reserve. And then it gives that money out to fill in those holes. So that's in the process that's happening. Very similar to almost identical to March of 1933 when Roosevelt did the same thing. And it's happening at a time, uh, like back in the Great Depression, when there were relatively large wealth gaps and because of those large wealth gaps, there are more political gaps. And there's going to be probably a lot more arguing about how the wealth pie should be divided. And it's happened through history. Throughout history, we've gone through the cycle of um, this debt cycle and financial cycle having to do with prosperity and then difficult times.
1: Ray, You talked about the role of the US central bank here. We have members joining from all over the world. There is questions not just about how the U.S. goes through this. You talked about how the EU and the U.S. can they have strong enough central banks that they will be protecting their own countries. What happens if you are in a country that doesn't have a central bank that can print enough money to be able to fill in those holes that you talk
2: about? So, figure in every place there are these holes. 70% of the world's transactions, buying and selling, and about 70% of the storing of wealth outside the country, reserves and the like, is in US dollars. So the US has a monopoly on those dollars, almost. There's a European central bank, much smaller. There's a Japanese central bank, much smaller. China has a central bank. They could take care of the Chinese. But by and large, we're living in a world economy because if you want to buy things, you pretty much have to buy them in dollars. What's happening now is that the United States production of dollars is largely going to Americans and that those who have financial holes that are often in dollars. There's about 60 trillion dollars of debt. In other words, it's owed in dollars. Uh, that is uh, owed by non-Americans. And as a result of that, they need dollars. And it's going to be much more difficult for them to get dollars to pay that debt. That's one of the big things that's going on. So in Europe, it's a bit better than that. They're going through a similar process. In China, they can manage that. Japan can manage that. They also have savings, large savings. You can measure it in reserves. But a lot of the rest of the world is going to have to look to its own balance sheet. Some countries, um, you could look to their savings, you could look to their reserves, and you say, how much do they have in savings? And they'll have to draw on those savings. And some of them will run out of those savings. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even the rich countries. uh, Think about um, oil producing countries. Their revenues are a lot less than their expenses. And then they have savings quite substantial savings. But that savings is gonna to have to be drawn down. They're gonna to have to sell assets and draw that down. And so a lot of the world will not be protected. The primary protection mechanism for doing this is the IMF. And the IMF has about a trillion dollars in assets. And now they're arguing about how much money um, should be uh, put out for supporting uh, you know, the G20 countries, How much would they chip in to support it? And it's unlikely to be very much. So those other places are going to have um, a shortage of hard currency. They manufacture their own currencies, of course, but those are not widely accepted. They're not widely accepted uh, for international transactions, and they're not widely accepted for savings. And so that diminishes the value. When they print those currencies, that diminishes the value of those currencies because there's not that much demand. And so I think it's going to be very difficult for those countries.
1: Question from Flavio uh, that relates to this, which is Should we expect to see uh, inflation rearing its head then, especially in those countries that are going to be printing their own currency?
2: There are two kinds of inflation. There's the supply and demand inflation. You know, in other words, when the demand for something is high and there's not enough of it, it goes up in price. And then there's monetary inflation. Monetary inflation means that you print a lot of money. And even though the economy can be very weak, you can have um, a monetary inflation because the supply of money and credit increases so much faster than the goods and services, even though there's not much demand for that. So um, it'll depend on which country you're in. Um, all this printing of money and credit right now in the United States is to fill in holes in the, in the balance sheets. So in and of itself, rather than um, causing higher level inflation in a place like the United States or Europe or Japan, what it's going to do is reduce a greater amount of deflation and because it's just filling in those holes. However, uh, we should talk about what is the value of money? What is the storehold of wealth? But when you get into other countries, that's not true. So they will have uh, the printing of their own money. It won't be in much demand. And, And yes, there is a significant likelihood that they will experience monetary inflation, even while the world has a shortage of demand.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
1: In your study of big debt crises, this is a question that comes from Nick Rodden-Jones. You said that once we see the right type of monetary and fiscal stimulus in a sufficient scale, that usually marks the end of a crisis. Do you think that what big governments have been doing lately has been a sufficient stimulus to bring back economic activity? Or is there still more to go here?
2: We estimate that the amount of losses in the United States in terms of actual losses is in the vicinity of about $5 trillion, and that the losses in the world is a bit over $20 trillion. And then, of course, it differs. So you just can't put that number out. You've got to get it in the right places. Uh, Right now, um, I would say um, it's still short in the United States and not getting necessarily in the right places. And in the rest of the world, um, it's still significantly short. And so, as the world is intertwined, uh, the balance sheet problems and the income problems of other places are going to matter, even if the virus uh, did not play any role in the future. Of course, there's significant likelihood that it will. You know, that's a whole other subject. But it looks like the amount it still isn't enough and worse so in the rest of the world than it is in the United States. And it's not necessarily all getting in the right hands at the right speed, so it's gonna be difficult.
1: Well, let's stay on that topic for a second. Since 2019, you've been writing about the problems with capitalism the need to uh, rethink capitalism in a way that actually helps support all parts of the economy rather than certain groups doing incredibly well and other groups really falling behind. Is this pandemic going to make things worse? Are you optimistic that things will get better out of this? How should we think about it?
2: Throughout history, the up expansions in prosperity are disproportionately shared. And then there's a large wealth gap. The the Roaring Twenties was an example of that. During economic downturns, there has to be some form of redistribution of wealth. It, It almost always happens because the hardship is disproportionately uh, felt. So we had a large um, wealth gap, and, and, and I think what bothered me more than that was the large opportunity gap. Mm-hmm. Um, education was not the same, and, and so on. So as we go down in this time of difficulty, there will be probably a lot of arguing about how to divide the pie you know, there's a, as a principle, an economic principle. Uh, If you have a large wealth gap and you have an economic downturn, there's likely to be uh, a fight over how to divide the pie. So um, with time, particularly here in this political year, uh, there's going to be a lot of arguing um, about that and how we do that, Uh, whether that's a civil argument or whether it's a, a fight is going to be important and whether that's done intelligently. I believe in um, the capitalist uh, profit-making system because it, it's the best allocation of resource if it creates equal opportunity. It's great because if the revenue that comes in is not greater than the expenses, so in other words, what you're putting out is not greater than what you're taking in to make it, the system reallocates resources, and it also brings capital to those who can do that but it's not complete in that there are dimensions, a lot of dimensions like education. Uh, my wife uh, uh, particularly works very closely with in Connecticut with disengaged and disconnected youth. So let me give you an example. Yeah. In Connecticut, which is one of the richest states in the country, 22% of the high school students are disengaged or disconnected. Now I'll tell you what that means. Disengaged means that they're absentee Rate is greater than twenty-five percent, and they're failing classes. So school, high school, isn't working for them. And um, dis- disconnected means they don't know where they are. They don't come to school anymore. Poverty is a big issue. They go to school to try to get food. They, they online education. They don't have computers, so we've gone out and bought them computers. The notion of is this a system that provides equal opportunity to be productive, equal education, those types of things. Those were the concerns. And the disparity in the outcomes was very large. I broke the economy up into different quintiles. And I looked top 40% in relationship to the bottom 60%, because the 60% is the majority. And on average, the amount that is spent for a child's education of someone in the top Uh, 40% is five times as much money as that which is spent for their education in the bottom 60%. So things like equal education and equal opportunity uh, is not necessarily achievable in the same way um, through uh, a profit-making system. The profit-making system can't do all of that. So that's what would concern me. And also the, the conflict itself, because the conflict itself threatens to bring about more swing away from capitalism. Anyway, that was what concerned me, and I think that now we have greater reason to be concerned.
1: Well, we have greater reason to be concerned, and you talked about in from uh, this looks really similar to the 1930 to 1945 um, global shift. To come out of that, you talked about the fact that there, has been, there was a lot of investment in the economy, a lot of investment in new businesses. We're seeing questions coming in about what the economy is going to look like coming out of this. Can you talk about post-pandemic? What does the economy look like?
2: Where are the investments? When we talk about investment, you have to start with who has what money to invest. That's where it starts. And that's why you have to look at um, incomes and balance sheets of all of the pieces, okay? And what's happened is it, it's it's damaged. So there, there are the holes. And so um, so when we look at that, right now today, a lot will depend on who gets the support. Uh, so there's going to be an important redistribution of wealth that is happening today when checks go out and get sent to people to fill in those particular holes. The economy will then readapt. Mm-hmm. I, I want to encourage you to think of it as follows. There is a there is a real economy um, that doesn't just imagine there's no medium of exchange that there's no money and credit that it's just the real economy the things you have around you and the ability to produce that and then there's simultaneously this financial economy that has a lot of IOUs people um, who have accumulated this buying power who have a claim on the goods and services purchases, as do the producers. So the amount of claims on the debt is a um, is a, a vacuum cleaner, essentially, on net worth. It's a claim on net worth. And so how that's filled in by the governments and how well it is will be a defining characteristics. I would imagine that what's going to happen is that savings rates are going to rise. That'll be individuals and companies because everybody wants to assure themselves um, of safety. It's redefined financially. I imagine that the priorities are going to shift. In other words, the priorities will be into healthcare and building the basics. I imagine we'll learn things about social distancing and so on. And regards the uh, last part point of the question, yes, we're going from a world that was interconnected and worked in a way where the most efficient producers on a global basis would compete with each other to sell things. And so it would be originated wherever it was best and it was a highly interconnected world and a more efficient world because of that ability to specialize. That won't be anywhere near the same. They'll, we're now going to be moving to a self-sufficient world. Not only will individuals want to assure their self-sufficiency, but countries are going to want to have its self-sufficiency because they're also vulnerable. It's a different geopolitical world. So for political reasons and for various reasons, right now, um, merchandise is being uh, shipped from China uh, to the United States for masks, for ventilators and so on that's a vulnerability. I imagine we're going to then want to build those things and build self-sufficiency. When that self-sufficiency is built, it'll make things more inefficient in the process. And so, yeah, the world will look uh, different in that way.
1: That's going to have huge impacts for manufacturing, for small businesses, for retail. We're going to all watch this play out. One of the things you didn't mention, and this comes a question from Lucas Bell, is what's the role of of the wealthy here? What's the role of billionaires? You're a billionaire. How do you think about what you and other people who have benefited the most from the economic situation, what should they be doing? What should you be doing?
2: Well, first of all, each makes personal choices and then the system establishes rules. What each person does is a matter of their own preference. In my case, you know, I grew up a um, uh, lower middle class family and um, I had opportunities and I have um, two parents who cared for me. I went to a public high school and I came out in a world of um, that was equal opportunity. I'm not into luxuries. I don't believe that my kids should be. I have my priorities to do things philanthropically and then also take care of my family like everybody else. Other people will have different priorities, they may have the same. And then there's laws. I think that we must realize that we're in the society together and that the large uh, wealth gaps, particularly when they're representing large opportunity gaps are uh, not fair and they're not productive because when a large percentage of the population is in a position where they can't have equal education or even adequate food, children, there's no excuse. For kids to not be able to have enough uh, food and and such things, I think there has to be a reorganization of the priorities and and also, uh, people have got to believe it's fair. I think that we're at a risk of um, losing capitalism. That the potent, the swing can be more in the opposite direction. Before we had this crisis, as you say, I wrote a piece on LinkedIn. It's still on LinkedIn, which is um, how and why can I believe how my capitalism needs to be reformed. And I think it has to be reformed behind an American dream. What is that American dream? And I think it's something like equal opportunity, but it has to be not, uh, um, just, uh, financial help and giving money away that has to be converted into productivity because we can only consume, uh, what we can produce. And so I think that there, you know, there needs to be a restructuring. Um, and I think you know, billionaires, let's say, um, have become that way typically because they came up with something special and the world paid for it and made them rich. Um, I would say that as we go forward, um, we have to recycle that opportunity a lot more.
1: I know people really tune in to a lot of your uh, pieces that you've been writing about and uh, the book that you wrote called Principles about how to govern yourself in work and really in your personal life also. Um, Question from Shireen is about what kind of skills you expect people to need that might be different coming out of this uh, financial crisis and pandemic. And if any of the advice that you've given in principles changes, because when you wrote that, we were going through a boom. Talent was in demand. Now we're looking at unemployment at, at numbers we haven't seen in a very long time. Uh, Does it change at all how people should think about where they invest in their skills and what kind of jobs they should be going after?
2: Well, you're asking two questions, um, what jobs and so on in the future, and then you're also asking uh, those principles. That was written uh, over 25 years of accumulating experiences, which are up and down experiences. The principles are more relevant for how to deal with bad times than they were about good times. So whether you look at um, that book or you look at my 30-minute video, which is called Principles for Success, it's the same basic principles. As far as, let's say, the big picture, these adjustments go on for relatively few years in the scope of things. Like this restructuring process will probably take place over, you know, maybe the next three to five years. And I know that's a long time, but it's not forever and the human capacity to adapt and invent and come out of this is much greater. You could see in history, these economic difficult periods like we're talking about are relatively brief periods, but they're painful periods, but there's restructuring periods. That's what they basically are. I think that um, we should be very excited about the new future. What is that evolution? It's, it has to do with how we think and about data and about um, digital. Um, so through history, there were changes in what mattered. You know, in the old days, there were, it was an agricultural economy and wealth meant owning land. And then in the industrial revolution, wealth meant being able to produce things and, and make machines and physical things. We're now in um, a, a wonderful revolution in terms of the capacity uh, to think and use that. I would say that is probably the most treasured thing in the, in the future. So one's ability to do that, to interact in a digital way and help um, that kind of thinking, either as a user of it, m- an effective user of it, or an effective uh, builder of it, um, I think that that's going to be important. However, there are all sorts of skills of various dimensions. We're, we're supporters of trades and trade skills. The, the importance of having nurses, the importance of having um, many other jobs. So it'll be wide ranging. But I would say um, understanding your uh, you know, your thinking skills or using digital uh, support mechanisms for thinking would be the most value.
1: Ray, that's a great way to end this. Uh, it's very optimistic uh, to look at how we can adapt and invent and work our way out of what is going to be a very painful restructuring. I'd yeah. like
2: to add one more thing. Sure. We have enough resources to make this all fine, and we have enough creativity. It's all going to depend on how we are with each other, whether we can do this together in a inclusive, more bipartisan way and do it in a skilled way, calmly, or whether we're going to fight with each other. If we fight with each other internally, Or even externally, it's going to make this thing very painful. So it really is up to us of how we are going to be with each other. That is the most important thing.
1: What a way to end it, Ray. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. That was Ray Dalio. Thank you to everyone who contributed really excellent questions to this episode. Ray recommends understanding your skill set and leveling up your knowledge as a way to prepare for our coming future. Does the current pandemic have you thinking about change or deepening a skill set? What have you been learning from home? What do you hope to do in the future? Let me know on LinkedIn using the hashtag, thisisworking. And to get more news and insights, follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn editors on LinkedIn. For more great content from top leaders, subscribe to This Is Working on Apple Podcasts and rate our show. It helps new listeners find us. This Is Working as a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm and Madison Schaefer with support from Stephen Valdivia and Michaela Greer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Lorencia Ariando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Come back next week for more information about how we're all getting through this together, how leaders are guiding their teams. But really, we want to hear from you. What are you doing to make it through these incredibly tough times? Let us know. And until then, I'll see you on LinkedIn.